Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is now the first black woman to be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. Senate Democrats wound up wooing three Republicans to Jackson's side. So when will she be sworn in and what difference will she be able to make on a court that's moved squarely to the right? Plus, Ukraine gets another round of military aid. More than 30 countries have joined us in delivering security assistance to Ukraine. Aid that our Ukrainian partners are putting to very effective use, as we see in the Kremlin's retreat from Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities and towns. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the additional cash infusion after President Biden toured the war-torn suburb of Bucha. And they say you can never go home again, but you can go back to the White House. President Obama was there on Tuesday for the first time since leaving office to promote an expansion of the Affordable Care Act. There's a lot to unpack, so let's jump right in. With us, Wendy Benjaminson, the Deputy Managing Editor of the Washington Bureau for Bloomberg News. Wendy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jen. Also with us, Mary Harris, host of the Slate Daily News podcast, What Next? Mary, thanks for being here. Great to be back. And Kelsey Snell, NPR's congressional correspondent. Kelsey, great to have you. Always glad to be here. So it's official. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson will become the newest Supreme Court justice in a vote that mostly stuck to party lines. Jackson was confirmed by the Senate on Thursday. Kelsey, again, Jackson was confirmed in a 53 to 47 vote. Which Republicans broke the party line? That was Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Now, they all announced their intentions earlier, um, actually some of them uh, just this week, in part because they had to do a procedural vote that would have kind of revealed their positions anyway, uh, well before this vote that happened yesterday. thought it was very interesting, though, that there were only a few... Uh, senators who are on the floor wearing masks yesterday. Mm. One of them was Senator Susan Collins, who just a little bit after that vote uh, announced that she had tested positive for the coronavirus, uh, which is something that is happening in great numbers across Washington right now. Well, what are the political implications for those three? Well, all three of them are people who have, you know, charted their own path politically in many ways. We kind of expected that Collins and Murkowski and actually Romney were kind of on the list of uh, potential Republicans from the moment that President Biden announced this nomination. Uh, they are all people who kind of um, tend to, to break with their party when it comes to matters that they consider to be, um, you know, personal decisions. And when it comes to judges and particularly Supreme Court justices, there's a long history of both parties um, kind of trying to frame these nominations as decisions about judicial temperament and ability and skill um, and their their approach to the law rather than about politics, though we've seen that fall apart over the last several nominations. Well, Mary, there are likely to be a lot of major decisions that come down this summer, including abortion access. When exactly will Jackson join the court and would her presence make a difference to these cases anyway? So Breyer will have, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we have to wait for Justice Breyer to leave for Ketanji Brown-Jackson to actually 
sit with the rest of the justices. So she won't be sworn in until the summer. So she will not have an impact on these cases that are moving forward right now. But there is a bigger question of how much impact she'll have when she does join the court, because she is sort of replacing a liberal justice and she is a liberal justice and there is a super majority of conservatives right now. And I think it raises this question of who she'll be on the court. You know, when she was actually applying for another um, judicial appointment, she was asked point blank, do you consider yourself a progressive advocate? And she said, no. She's like, I don't even know what that means. And that's, I think it gives you a little bit of insight into her approach, which is she's a moderator. She's looking for places of agreement. And so it'll be interesting to see how she maneuvers in that way once she does join the court. And we should mention here, Justice Breyer is expected to step down in June or July. Wendy, midterms, of course, later this year, President Biden kept his promise of nominating a black woman to the Supreme Court. Do you think that'll matter come election time? You know, I I worry that, it, well, I think it might matter more to Republican voters than it will to Democratic voters. Democrats have had a really hard time getting their base voters, or really any of their voters, um, too excited about the Supreme Court, whereas we all know that the conservatives have really turned the Supreme Court into a base issue. Um, and the fact that, as uh, Mary and Kelsey said, um, Kintaji Brown-Jackson doesn't shift the balance on the court. She shifts the optics of the court, being the first black woman, that I think that it, um, it will have less of an impact for Democrats. It does, as we saw in the hearing, um, the Republicans really served up a side of midterm politics with um, the soft on crime uh, theme that they put through her, uh, through her confirmation hearings. And I think they probably scored points there. We got this tweet from Hillary who asks, what might be the implications for Republicans who didn't vote for Judge Brown Jackson? Kelsey? Well, uh, they probably will be using some of the material that came up in her hearings to campaign on. I mean, this is not a time when voting, uh, you know, in a polarized political moment like this, this is not a time when voting against a, a, a judicial nominee from Democrats will hurt most Republicans. Actually, the vast majority of Republicans would view it as a political boon to have vote, voted against her. So for the most part, many of them may actually campaign on their vote against her. Well, on Wednesday, the current iteration of the Supreme Court reinstated a Trump-era environmental policy on its so-called shadow docket. The rule restricts the role states play in enforcing the Clean Water Act. This ruling passed five to four with no written opinion explaining the reasoning. The four dissenters argue the majority used a case on the court's supposed shadow docket to issue a significant ruling without talking it through. Mary, remind us, what is the shadow docket? So the shadow docket, Republicans don't like to call it that, conservatives don't like to call it that, they like to call it the emergency docket. And you'll, you'll notice that in the dissent from Elena Kagan, she pointedly called it that, which some have said is maybe a reason why she got John Roberts to agree with her on this. But in any case, the shadow docket is basically an, a way to get a, around the actual going and doing a hearing and having an opinion, it's an emergency docket. You're making the argument you need this ruling right away, and so you're going to skirt the usual process. And there have been more and more of these cases in the last few years, and experts have really flagged it as potentially problematic because you're making law that's really important, but there's not a full airing of why you're making whatever decision you are. It's just these nine justices making a decision 
for you. And in this case, what we're looking at is a Trump era rule that basically limited the ability of states to control the safety of their water. So it put a one year time limit in place to restrict projects like pipelines. It basically says, if you don't weigh in before that, the government can basically say, you've waived your veto power and we can do what we want here. Now, it's interesting because that's kind of a state's rights thing. Um, and the Supreme Court has said that the Trump era rules should stay in place. Wendy, what do you think are the broader implications of this ruling? Well, I think the implications are, as um, Mary and Kelsey said, um, very much more about the shadow docket for now. Um, the fact that Chief Justice John Roberts joined in the dissent against the um, emergency move that the Supreme Court made on this Clean Water Act is really significant. And I think he's going to probably push to move away from that. When Texas came up, when the Texas abortion case, which you know limited abortions to six weeks, of pregnancy um, came up, there was an emergency ruling there. And I think everyone can agree that there are certain cases, certain laws that are passed that must be adjudicated at an emergency basis. I mean, there were, you know, people don't stay six weeks pregnant for very long. And so they had to they had to rule on that, you know, pretty quickly. This one, there was really no reason it couldn't have gone through the whole process. And um, I think that the fact that Roberts is opposed to that now uh, may have an impact. Well, on Monday, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that makes it somewhat easier to sue the police for malicious prosecution. And it was a rare example of three conservative justices joining the court's three liberals in the majority opinion. Mary, what exactly is malicious prosecution and what does this case say? Well, so what this basically says is that, well, I'll I'll tell you the story of the case because it'll be easier to understand if I do it that way. This guy, Larry Thompson, he was living with his fiance with a newborn baby and his sister-in-law called the police. Apparently she had a mental illness and she said something was going wrong in the household. The police came. He said, you need a warrant to get in here. They end up tossing him in jail for two days, charging him with resisting arrest. And all they find that is wrong with the baby is that the baby has diaper rash. So this is a clear case of this person is brought into the justice system, but there isn't really a reason So he sued and he alleged malicious prosecution. He's saying you can't do this. But the cops had dropped the charges. And that had been a way to avoid these kinds of suits. Because if you drop the charges, it's you haven't actually gone through the whole process. Now, what the court is saying here is like, listen, if you have a case like this, obviously you have upended this person's life. You've put him in jail for two days. So just dropping the charges isn't enough to get you off the hook here. And you should still be responsible back with more in a moment. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's pivot to Ukraine. This week, the U.S. announced an additional $100 million in aid for the war-torn country. So far, the U.S. has provided $1.7 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since Russia invaded on February 24th. Mary, how significant is this amount of U.S. investment? We have a clip of him speaking here. Let's listen. A fair deal that Ukraine is proposing is simple. You provide us with everything that we need and we will fight for our security but also for your security so that Putin, President Putin will, ha- will have no chance to test Article 5 
of the North Atlantic Treaty. Mary, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we're sending these weapons. It's mostly Javelin weapons, these anti-tank missiles that we've heard a lot about. We've even heard of people in Ukraine naming their children after them. They've been so important to the war effort. But then also these switchblade drones, which we have apparently been training people who are Ukrainian soldiers in this country and will send them back to train other Ukrainian soldiers how to use these kinds of drones. Now, again, that was Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitro Kuleba. Uh, Wendy, when we hear Kuleba reference Article 5, he's talking about the requirement that NATO responds if one of their member states is attacked by Russia. As far as we know, could we see a Russian invasion of Estonia, Romania, or any other Eastern European nation in NATO? Not, um, because that would trigger Article 5, which is a um, rarely used but very, um, very firm, agreed upon part of the NATO alliance, which means if one NATO country is attacked, all NATO countries consider themselves attacked and join the fight. The last time Article 5 was triggered was 9-11, when the United States was attacked. And that's where um, President Bush got his coalition of the willing, and a lot of them were NATO countries who believed that this was this triggered Article 5. If Putin or Russia bombs or attacks in any way Poland, the countries you mentioned, the Baltics, who are NATO members, NATO really has no choice but to gain. And I think that's what Kuleba was getting at. Look, just keep sending us weapons and we'll try to keep this contained which I got to say is an incredibly brave thing to say, and they're they're doing an amazing, putting up an amazing fight. Um, but if if a bomb goes into Polish territory, then you know all bets are off, and we're looking at World War III, which is not great. Well, on Thursday, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy joined a bipartisan group of lawmakers in a visit to the Polish-Ukrainian border. Uh, Kelsey, what will be the focus of this trip for McCarthy and his group? Well, this is a trip that kind of follows President Biden's trip to Europe where he met with NATO allies. Uh, they're, they're making stops in Poland and Warsaw and a few other places. They're also going to Romania and Brussels. So this is part of what is fairly standard practice for Congress when Congress is not in session is that members go on what, what are known as CODELs or congressional delegations to kind of gather more information about uh, either conflicts or events that are happening outside of the U.S. borders. So it is not uncommon for leaders to be doing this. Uh, but the fact that this is a, another bipartisan trip to Ukraine and an attempt for members to kind of get a, a read on the ground there is an indication of you know, the fact that Congress may be considering future action, that they may feel the need to do more in addressing the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine, the attacks from Russia on Ukraine. Uh, we It's very hard to see exactly where they go from here because they just uh, voted just yesterday to strip Moscow of preferential trade status and to ban the Import of Russian energy into the United States. So uh, it's Congress kind of trying to figure out where they fit into the broader response to Ukraine and Russia. Well, and how would you describe the mood around this issue in Congress, considering the fact that there has been a, a distinct lack of bipartisanship in, in recent years? Well, there was a bit of a delay on the issue of the permanent um, normal trade relations with Russia, in part because they were trying to work out the details and there was a little bit of side fighting about um, issues that Republicans wanted to have uh, some kind of 
they wanted to have a, a separate vote on on some issues dealing with the border, and so it was holding up the process there. But generally speaking, there is bipartisan support for doing more, the U.S. doing more in response to Russia. The question is, you know, what is Congress's role here? What is the White House able to do on their own? And there's not a lot of strong communication between Republicans and the White House on this matter. So that is a bit of the problem here. Uh, I will say that some of the things that Congress wants to do would be largely symbolic because, like, like the oil and gas ban in particular would be largely symbolic because some of this is really up to the administration, not up to Congress to weigh in on. Well, the United States announced new sweeping economic sanctions against Russian banks this week. Here's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testifying in front of Congress on Wednesday. We are working very closely with our partners to have a coordinated set of sanctions. And our goal from the outset has been to impose maximum pain on Russia while, to the best of our ability, shielding the United States and our partners of undue economic harm. Now, Wendy, Secretary Yellen carefully noted these sanctions have been designed to not cause the U.S. and its allies economic harm. What other sanctions have remained off the table? Well, I think they're trying to, uh, well, they're certainly trying to help Europe, uh, you know, get energy not from, that is not from Russia. Um, they're very, Europe is very, very dependent on that. They're also very mindful of U.S. politics and food prices and things like that. So they want to make sure that um, the imports that, that Americans need are still are still flowing in and that, you know, we balance, they balance politically um, food prices and other things against, uh, you know, a popular desire to make uh, Russia pay for what it's doing. Well, and Mary, what impact could these economic sanctions have on slowing Russia's military invasion? What's, What's the hope there? Well, I mean, the hope is to just make things as uncomfortable as possible, right? But the question is, what, who's feeling the discomfort and does it matter that they're feeling it? You know, if the, if, the, if the discomfort is not being felt by Putin directly, does it have an impact on what's happening in Ukraine? I think that's the real question. And we are definitely still waiting to see that. Well, and Kelsey, you said there are, there's a question about the role the U.S. should play and, and the role Congress has to play here. Have you heard any ideas that are that are being surfaced right now about further action on the past part of the U.S.? Well, largely Republicans are saying that uh, President Biden needs to needs to do more, that they're trying to pressure the administration to take the next steps, and whether that be with arms or in some other way. Honestly, a lot of the feedback from Congress is a little bit vague, um, in part because, like I said, they don't have a lot of the power here, though they want to make sure that they are weighing in, that you know voters view them as being on the right side of history here, because, of course, this is an election year, and there's a midterm election coming up, and Congress doesn't want to be left out of having an opinion about Russia and Ukraine. Now, Wendy, the U.S. also upped the pressure on the oligarchs this week. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department will indict Konstantin Malafev for repeatedly violating U.S. economic sanctions. Who is Malafev? Malafev is one of the uh, very, very wealthy Russians. He's also the founder of something called the Marshall Capital Fund. Um, he uh, has a lot of Wall Street influence. Um, he is also uh, close to Putin. And anyone close to Putin these days is in danger of having their um, 
their assets seized. I believe he is also the one who is being charged criminally, which as long as he stays out of the U.S., I don't think we'll have much teeth, but um, charged criminally with violating sanctions. And this is part of the program uh, that Mary and Kelsey are talking about, where it's as close as you can get to Putin, including his own daughters, the daughters of and wife of Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, um, and other people um, just making making it as uncomfortable for them in the hopes that they'll pressure Putin to give up. There is no sign that that is happening right now. Well, Malafev is the first Russian oligarch to be criminally charged since Russia invaded Ukraine. We spoke with Democratic Representative Tom Malinowski back in March about legislation he proposed that would convert seized Russian assets into military aid for Ukraine. Kelsey, what progress, if any, has been made on that bill so far? I am not aware of any progress on that bill. I mean, the thing about Congress is they often come up with uh, proposals like this that, you know, uh, that are uh, can be about messaging, can mm. be about um, letting people know what their priorities are. But on this particular issue, I've not seen any movement. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, Kelsey, as this, as this continues, what are you watching mo- most closely, especially out of Congress? Well, I'm generally looking at whether or not they're going to attempt to do anything more on the fr- on the sanctions front, um, or if they can reach any sort of agreement about what needs to be done um, in terms of just making a statement about where they stand on further military intervention. I don't expect that we'll see much of that. I think that Congress is in a position where they, as I said before, they want to weigh in and have an opinion on the topic, but are not particularly empowered in this point. I do think we will also hear them calling for more briefings from the White House. There have been widespread complaints that members feel like they are not as clued in as or kept as abreast of what's going on and the intelligence that the White House has. We got this question from Lori, who emails, who are Russia's allies if the war escalates beyond Ukraine? What are their military capabilities? Mary, what can you tell us? Well, I think all eyes right now are really on what China does in the next month or so, how how close they are willing to be to Russia as this drags out. And, you know, it's interesting, we've taken such a strong anti-China stance in this country. Biden was very firm about it when he came into office. This is really his priority. And this is an interesting moment where actually we need to be kind of moving closer to China to make ourselves look like an interesting ally, someone you want to keep close instead of Putin. And so that, to me, is what I'm really watching when I'm looking at allies. There are smaller countries too, but I feel like these bigger countries that are really wrapped up in the autocracy that you're seeing out of Russia, they're important to watch because if they band together, it really is quite problematic for the wider world order. Wendy, your thoughts, especially, I'd like to hear from you how this fits into the White House's calculation about how they move forward. It's it's extremely tricky. And Mary is absolutely right that China is the main one to watch. I mean, Belarus this tiny little country next between Ukraine and Russia that is that is allowing um, Russia to stage troops there, but they are really you know not much of a threat, and they're being slapped with sanctions, and they're already one of the poorest countries in Europe. Um, the other economic partners to watch um, would include India. Um, because India is a huge economic market. They are not that interested in um, not getting Russian wheat and other products, Russian oil. And so um, that could upset an alliance that the United States has with India if it sides with Russia. But yes, I mean, part of these calculations is, and I think Kaleba, again, in that clip really um, reflected that, 
is how does the U.S. help Ukraine without expanding this? It is a very delicate dance. Well, let's pivot now to criminal justice and start in Minnesota. In February, 22-year-old Amir Locke was killed by police after they entered his home with a no-knock warrant. We now know the officer who shot him will not face charges. Mary, just catch us up on the basics of this case. So... You probably saw this video, and if you didn't, I'll, I'll just explain it briefly. There's this no-knock warrant, and in the video, you see the police knock. They go into an apartment. Amir Locke is sleeping on a couch. It's not his apartment. He's not the target of the warrant. And you see movement. And if you look very closely, you can see that there was a gun under the blanket. Police shoot him. Um, it, it was such an upsetting video because truly – a sleeping person being disturbed by police, not knowing what's happening. It's natural to want to defend yourself. Who knows what was going through his mind in that moment? You know, when I was responding to this tape and doing some reporting on it, I interviewed Jeremiah Ellison, who's a city council member in Minneapolis. And he made this point that I thought was so important. He said, you know, I'm a black man. I have a concealed carry permit. If I was at a friend's house overnight, which is sort of what appears to have happened here, and I had my weapon with me, where else would I have put it than on my person to keep everyone safe in the apartment? And so the idea that this person was startled and then killed is just so, so upsetting. And the decision here that the police can't be prosecuted in this case is really based on this fact that you can't consider the victim's perspective here, that you just need to consider the officer's threat to life. And it's upsetting. And, you know, there were questions asked when Keith Ellison announced this, you know, should we be changing that law? Because this video was just so shocking. Kelsey, you know, when we think about the racial justice protests of 2020s and of 2020, and we have the midterms just ahead, is this still a priority for elected officials? Well, Democrats have had a very difficult time getting any sort of racial justice legislation or a civil rights legislation or voting rights legislation through. And it is a major complaint for activists that I talked to. You know, I actually was sp- speaking with uh, some folks yesterday uh, who are, you know, who generally have worked in activism, gener- uh, dem- uh, working with Democrats in activism, uh, about their, their response to Judge Katanji Brown Jackson becoming Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. And one of the things that I heard from several people was the general feeling that Democrats need to remember they can't just deliver on single promises to an entire swath of voters who really believed and showed up for Democrats um, in the past election, and that they, you know, that voters expect more and want to see more from Democrats, but they are very much uh, hobbled in, in their ability to get anything done by the very narrow majorities that they have in the House and the Senate. So it will be an ongoing effort, but they don't have the votes to get any of this done. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Let's turn to the investigation of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This week, Ivanka Trump became the latest Trump associate to testify before the House subcommittee. Her husband and former Trump aide, Jared Kushner, sat before the committee last month. Kelsey, what are lawmakers looking to get from their testimony? 
Well, they're looking for details about uh, their involvement on the day and their conversations with former President Trump. Um, you know, they say that this is a, a matter of Ivanka Trump's voluntary co- cooperation and that she answered questions for uh, what my colleague Claudia Griselis um, estimates was about five hours. Uh, during the course of that conversation, uh, the committee chairman, Benny Thompson, came out and spoke with reporters and said that um, Ivanka Trump was answering questions, but he said to quote him, not in broad, chatty terms, but she's answering questions. So it's unclear exactly what they were able to get from her. Um, we won't really know the full scope of what they've learned from these these conversations until probably in the next several months when we expect Democrats to start rolling out parts of their investigation, making public reports and holding hearings. We don't expect some sort of really big report like we saw during the Russia investigation with the Mueller report. Um, I'm told and Claudia is told that they're, they want to kind of build a case over time and let the public uh, learn about it in that way instead of having a really big report that is kind of put out there and left for people to digest and perhaps miss parts. Um, there are lots of conversations about what that may mean politically for Democrats, but so far as we understand it, that is their plan. And what's the timing expected? on that. Uh, it's, they have moved their timeline several times. At first, they were saying it would be early spring. Then uh, we heard that they were talking about April, and now maybe it's around May. So it's kind of a moving target, in part because they are still going through the process of gathering depositions and trying to compel people to come and speak. And there's also just the sheer amount of documentation involved. Lawmakers obtained more than 100 emails related to the investigation sent between January 4th and January 7th. Former President Donald Trump's former lawyer, John Eastman had tried to claim attorney-client privilege over the documents. Kelsey, what's in these emails? Well, that's part of what they're they are trying to establish a timeline and find out exactly when, um, you know, who was in contact with the former president and uh, who he was trying to contact. This is part, like you said, of a broader effort to try to get information. And it actually, like you said, speaks to why it may be taking so long, because there are courts involved here. Uh, there are issues of different uh, members of the Trump administration trying to claim privilege. And there are there are people who are just flat out refusing to participate. And that means that that Congress is having to get involved um, and ask the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Justice Department to become involved. Uh, So this is a complex process of gathering information that has taken Congress much longer than they necessarily had hoped at the outset. Well, in an interview with the Washington Post this week, Trump maintained his false claims about widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Despite finding no evidence, these claims have led GOP lawmakers in a number of states to pass laws restricting voting and election processes. In Texas, more than 12 percent of mail-in ballots for the March primary were rejected. That's after the state adopted a law last year creating additional ID requirements to vote. 19 states in total enacted voting restrictions in 2021, according to the Brennan Center. Wendy, how will these restrictions impact the midterms this fall? Uh, We think they're going to have a very big impact on the midterms this fall. I mean, there are um, actually more than a thousand laws introduced across the country, according to Bloomberg's research on this, that would either expand or restrict voting or expand or restrict um, essentially the counting of the votes. There are a number of states that are attempting to, through their state legislatures, essentially give challengers to the results, it would be of either party, I presume, um, the tools that Trump and his um, acolytes didn't have in the aftermath of the November election. Um, Some of them are based on conspiracy theories, like, you know, we're going to ban Dominion voting machines, which 
would have no impact, even if they were banned. Um, but some of them um, allow for a lot more challenges to results that are that don't necessarily invite a challenge, you know, definite results. Um, you mentioned the Texas ballot rejection rate. That's one way of doing it. One in eight ballots rejected. And if you remember, even though Texas is a very red state, it's five major metropolitan areas are Democratic. And um, so that there are a lot of Democratic votes that could be thrown out because of bad ID. Um, Georgia did end up giving, creating this branch of the Bureau of Investigation in the state that reports directly to the governor, not to you know uh, the, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, who can investigate claims of election fraud, um, election. Uh, staff, election off officials from the counties in Georgia did not want this bill to pass. They all testified against it, and yet it did. Mary, how do you think these changes, are, how, how is it impacting the electorate itself? Not just the logistics of, of voting, but how people feel about the process. I mean, it remains to be seen. And the thing that the thing that's interesting about what's happening, there's so many things happening at the same time, right? You have something like what's happening in Texas, where you're putting in all these hurdles to voting by mail. You have to write your ID number twice, and it has to match exactly what you gave them when you registered. Like, that's one kind of barrier. And then you have what's happening in Georgia and Florida with these, you know, empowering these investigators who are outside of the election system to look into what happened. And so it's kind of like mashing all the buttons at once. And I'm actually kind of curious how it all plays out. And the reason I say that is that when you make it harder to vote, it's a very blunt tool. Like Republicans have benefited from having more people vote. And this could be disenfranchising tons of people on the front end, Republicans and Democrats, all kinds of people. And I think we're only going to learn later what the impact of this was. Now, the investigations, obviously, that's making a political process out of something that was less political before because it was controlled by a secretary of state or it was controlled by local elections officials. But like I said, the reason it's so hard to figure out how this will play out, other than to say, like, this is a bad sign for democracy, which is certainly true no matter what, is that it's just, it's really like pressing all the buttons on the keyboard at once and in random ways in different states. And we're just going to have to see. Well, this week, former President Barack Obama went back to the White House for the first time since leaving office. Obama was there to celebrate his landmark legislation, the Affordable Care Act, which passed 12 years ago. Given all the noise and the controversy and the skepticism, it took a while for the American people to understand what we had done. But lo and behold, a little later than I'd expected, a lot of folks, including many who had initially opposed health care reform, came around. And today, the ACA hasn't just survived, it's pretty darn popular. And the reason is because it's done what it was supposed to do. It's made a difference. First 20 million, and now 30 million people have gotten covered thanks to the ACA. The former president was also there to promote a new executive order President Biden signed, which builds on the ACA. Mary, explain a bit more about what this order does. 
So what it does is it takes care of something called the family glitch, which prevents millions of families from qualifying for subsidies on the health insurance marketplaces because it looks at, you know, sort of one, if one family member can access an affordable individual plan through their job, you can't skip over to the marketplace and get something there, even though you might be covering many more people in your family. And a family plan could be much more expensive and it could sort of knock you over into something that would be more expensive. So it's closing that loophole. And it sounds like, you know, about 5 million people are impacted by this kind of glitch. Um, A lot of them have employer insurance, but a couple hundred thousand people are estimated to be gaining coverage potentially through this change. The Biden administration also announced they're extending the freeze on student loan repayments through August 31st. Some borrowers haven't had to make payments since March 2020. Uh, Wendy, this repayment pause has already been extended multiple times by both former President Trump and current President Biden. What's with all the back and forth? Well, I think that um, Biden has is waiting for a good moment both for the economy and, frankly, I know this has been a theme throughout the show this morning, the midterm politics um, of making uh, student loan uh, student loan holders repay their debts. Um, the, the right now, the economy is not in a great state in terms of inflation and other things to, you know, to ask people to add a couple hundred dollars to their monthly budget again or or more. Um, but really, I think it's also, um, and, and the legislature is not, has not been able to, or the Congress, excuse me, has not been able to, to pass any law that would, that would eliminate the student debt, although Schumer has called for it. Um, but I also think there's a lot of politics involved here, and I would probably bet real money that it will be extended past November 2nd. On Wednesday, lawmakers pressed oil executives over the price of gas, accusing companies of price gouging. We understand that oil is a global commodity whose price is determined by the global marketplace. We understand that the COVID-19 pandemic threw that global marketplace into disarray. And we understand that Vladimir Putin's senseless, vicious invasion of Ukraine has further reduced the world's oil supply as more and more companies are unwilling to buy Russian oil, and rightly so. But here's the thing. If the price of gas is driven by the global market, Why is the price of oil coming down, but the price at the pump is still near record highs? That was Representative Diana DeGette, chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Kelsey, how did the oil executives respond? Uh, it was uh, they. It was a bit of a, a a ducking of the of the questions in some ways because you know there this is a partisan issue. Uh, Republicans say that that the the issue with oil and gas isn't has nothing to do with these executives. They say it's the Biden administration's fault for uh, creating inflation through the many ways that uh, they've made attempts to bolster the economy through COVID aid. Democrats say this is simply a case of the energy companies taking advantage of the current circumstances, the global circumstances with the price of oil um, and an attempt to, you know, bolster their own profits because of world events. So this is kind of one of those situations where, depending upon where you stand politically, you have a, likely have a very different view on who is to blame here. 
Want to quickly make sure to mention that state lawmakers passed a near total ban on abortions this week in Oklahoma. It's part of a string of restrictive abortion measures being introduced around the U.S. by Republican lawmakers. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, also a Republican, is expected to sign the bill. Well, let's wrap up on this story. This week, former President Donald Trump endorsed former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin for the U.S. House of Representatives. She's looking to replace Republican Don Young, who held the seat for nearly 50 years and died in in 2022. In a statement, Trump wrote, quote, Sarah shocked many when she endorsed me very early in 2016, and we won big. Now it's my turn. Sarah has been a champion for Alaska values, Alaska energy, Alaska jobs, and the great people of Alaska, end quote. Wendy, what do you think this endorsement means for Palin's campaign? I think it will will help Sarah Palin. I mean, I, I've always sort of thought of Sarah Palin as the proto-Trump, you know, the, the first uh, Republican candidate who, um, uh, you know, evinced the sort of Trumpian qualities that we've all come to know so well. Um, and it was surprising to see it in uh, 2008 when she was John McCain's running mate um, and, and probably contributed to, to his defeat back then. Now I think, she's, I think she's probably still very popular in Alaska. Um, and, you know, that's the, I think that's the only congressional seat in Alaska. I'm not sure. But, the, um, uh, but I, I think she'll do well and that Trump's endorsement will only help her. Well, Amiri, how is, is this endorsement game playing out heading into the midterms? How big of a role is the former president playing? Well, he's trying to play a big role, and it'll really be a little bit of a referendum on how big of a deal his endorsement is. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Alaska in particular, because first of all, this election is just massive. There are 40 candidates out there right now. And Sarah Palin, you know, I looked at this at first, I'm like, oh, she's got this name recognition, right? You think like, of course, like she'll just walk in and waltz off with it, right? She was governor. But then I found this data from an Alaskan survey group that found that only 31% of respondents in Alaska had a positive view of Palin. This is from October 2021. A full 56% had a negative view. So it'll be interesting to see if a Trump endorsement sort of supersedes that in some way, because the people in Alaska probably know her best. And so can this kind of endorsement overcome what may have been something that would have held her back before? That's Mary Harris, host of the Slate Daily News podcast, What Next? Also with us today, Wendy Benjaminson, the deputy managing editor of the Washington Bureau for Bloomberg News, and Kelsey Snell, NPR's congressional correspondent. Mary, Wendy, Kelsey, thanks and happy Friday. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, and Chris Castano is our digital editor. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. This is a civilian block of flats. Now, only a ballistic missile or an airstrike can do this sort of damage. Under the laws of war, killing civilians and wanton destruction are both crimes, unless it can somehow be proved that that was a military target. 
That's the BBC's Jeremy Bowen. He, along with plenty of other press teams, have brought us some of the most brutal images of the Russian invasion of Ukraine so far. And there are real fears that the indiscriminate killing we've seen in the suburbs north of Kyiv is happening in other parts of the country. This morning, at least 50 people were reportedly killed after two rockets hit the Kramatorsk train station in eastern Ukraine. Let's get to all of it with our panel. Our guests today are Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Dave, great to have you back. Great to be with you. Also with us, Kate Brannan, Deputy Editor at Foreign Affairs. Kate, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, always great to have you on. Hello. Dave, what more did we learn this week about Russia's decision to regroup and what they left behind them? Right. So we saw some truly horrific scenes from the towns and cities near Kyiv where Russian troops had advanced and have now pulled back. Uh, The ones that uh, many people will have heard of or seen are in Bucha. This is a city uh, in the suburbs of Kyiv. Some quite horrific images uh, of civilians uh, apparently having been massacred there. Uh, Russia is moving its forces east Uh, We're expecting a big battle for the Donbass region, or at least the areas of that region that are not already held by Russia. Uh, And one city in that region, uh, Kramatorsk, is the city that was just struck with these uh, missile strikes or rocket strikes this morning, while people anticipating that Russia was going to move in for this offensive have been trying to flee. So they're congregating at this rail station to try to get out. Uh, and it was struck by rockets, and at least 50 people were killed. Kate, to what extent could the reporting from towns like Bucha or from Kramatorsk change how America and the West will next respond? Well, already you're seeing in Europe uh, the pressure going up, you know, after witnessing these atrocities. There's clearly been uh, torture. uh, There are reports of rape. Um, there's been alcohol found at the scenes of a lot of these massacres, mass graves. So this week in Europe, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you see more pressure to cut off some of the financing, which is coming in the form of European purchases of Russian gas, oil, and coal. Um, and so already, you know, in the face of, of this level of atrocity, um, there's even more pressure to, to not support Russia in any way possible. Well, Ukraine's President Zelensky addressed the UN's Security Council on Tuesday after visiting Bucha. The massacre in our city of Bucha is only one, unfortunately only one, of many examples of what the occupiers have been doing on our land for the past 41 days. There are many more cities, similar places, where the world has yet to learn the full truth. America's ambassador to the U.N. also spoke. Linda Thomas-Greenfield drew attention to other alarming claims about what was happening to Ukrainian families in areas that had previously been overrun by Russia's invading forces. Reports indicate that Russian federal security agents are confiscating passports and IDs, taking away cell phones and separating families from one another. I do not need to spell out what these so-called filtration camps are reminiscent of. David, how can the UN justify keeping Russia on its Security Council? As a member, it gives them huge sway on the world stage. Does anyone think there's a good reason why they should be afforded that privilege? I fear it's not a privilege for them to be there. This is the trap of the UN, which is that the UN only makes sense if it is the body that represents the whole world. And the Security Council has five 
permanent members. Those are basically the winners of World War II. And you have to have the world's most powerful countries on the Security Council. And the problem with that, of course, is that we now have a, a war of aggression with brutal war crimes being committed by one of those five permanent members, Russia, which has a veto. So it can veto uh, its any criticism of this terrible war that it's carrying out. And, and of course, naturally, uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky said, you know, how can you have a Security Council that cannot guarantee security? And there is a short-term temptation to kick a country like Russia off. But if you kick Russia off, then you don't have, you know, a representative Security Council. Then, you you know, you kick China off next, or they might call for America to be kicked off because it's invaded, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan back in the day. And this is the problem with the UN. Is it's, I think it's very easy to scapegoat the UN as a kind of body. But the truth is the UN is just a building full of the countries of the world. And it's the governments of the world that are deeply, deeply divided. And Russia is is vetoing and it, and it is a tragedy. But kicking them off, I think, would, would destroy the UN and we would miss it if it was gone. Dave, what do we know about the focus that's now turning to eastern Ukraine and Russia's plans for the Donbass? Right. So uh, you'll remember that uh, Russia basically was attacking across the whole east of the country, at least including uh, toward the capital, Kyiv. Um, the idea, as far as the Pentagon and Ukrainian officials uh, can gather, was that they thought they'd be able to take uh, all of the major cities of Ukraine, including the capital, in a matter of days. That has not happened. Russia is pulling back. It's now focusing on the other war aim that Vladimir Putin laid out, which was, uh, in his words, to liberate the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, where there are a lot of Russian speakers and where Russia has been claiming falsely that there's some kind of genocide happening against those Russian speakers in the region. So the focus is on the Donbass region, which is in the southeast of the country. Russia is gathering quite a significant force moving in on that region. A lot of Ukraine's best forces are already fighting there. The concern uh, from the Ukrainian side is that they could be effectively surrounded by Russian troops. And the Ukrainian foreign minister has said the world should expect fighting that will resemble World War II. They're big land battles for territory uh, between two armies. And so uh, the war is concentrating in a smaller area of the country, but that will not necessarily mean the fighting will be any less intense. Here's an email we got from Bob who says it has become clear that the UN is irrelevant in the face of the invasion and atrocities in Ukraine. Its charter prevents any real action against Russia. The removal of Russia from the Human Rights Council is meaningless. Kate, talk about that move to remove Russia from the Human Rights Council. It happened um, on Thursday in the General Assembly. There was a vote to kick Russia out of the, the Human Rights Council. And as the the um, person who emailed in, it, it's it's true, it, it was symbolic mostly in nature. Um, what was interesting was the vote and seeing who voted against the measure. You had uh, some of Russia's neighbors that are remain under its influence, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kaz- uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, voting against kicking it off the council. But you also had China, uh, most notably, and uh, Syria and Iran. Well, we did see the first signs this week that some Ukrainians have decided to head back home. That's particularly true for those whose towns have escaped most of the shelling. The Polish ambassador to the U.S., Marek Magarowski, told Fox News why his country would continue to look after those Ukrainians who have no homes to return to. Ukrainian refugees are still welcome to Poland. We realize that this is what we owe to them because they are fighting not only for their freedom and their independence, but also for ours. They are defending our values, which are so dear to us in Europe. 
Now, it's only natural for people to look for positive news, but we're over 40 days into this war. David, what's the best assessment for how long this war could last? Well, one of the worries is that, you know, it's it's easy to celebrate the fact that Russian troops have pulled back from the capital, Kiev, and from the, the north. But, you know, you have Western defense officials telling uh, reporters that, in fact, if they're going back to regroup and to rearm, and it, it could take a month, uh, they could be back in much greater numbers. And I think the politics of this is that Vladimir Putin is not going to go quietly. I think that we've learned from the last few weeks, uh, if we didn't know it before, that he is extraordinarily ruthless and he has this kind of messianic sense that he is uh, you know, writing a wrong that Ukraine is not a real country at all, that it's a historical mistake, as he calls it. And, you know, the fact that the war has gone so far so badly for him, we can't expect him to just go, OK, my bad, uh, you know, you win, I lose. So he is going to come back with extraordinary force. Uh, he does need to regroup and, and rearm. And he has this new war aim that his own uh, generals and, and Kremlin spokesmen have talked about, which is that maybe all along they were focused on the east. And that could still be incredibly bad for Ukraine, because if Ukraine is cut off uh, in a sort of broad stripe of land down the east and around the south, it could be all effectively almost cut off from access to the sea. It could lose some of its most valuable manufacturing areas, the steel and coal areas uh, that Russia wants so badly. One of the really extraordinary things about this fight for the East is that, remember that justification for the war was that the Russian speakers of Ukraine were somehow absolutely true Russians who needed to be saved from the Nazis, as Vladimir Putin put it, untruthfully. Some of these Russian-speaking towns are the ones that are having the worst of the fighting. This this awful attack on the train today uh, is on a Russian-speaking area in the East, Kramatorsk, Mariupol in the south on the, on the Crimean Sea, uh, is a Russian-speaking city that used to be very pro-Russian. And so this, you know, this could carry on for a lot longer and he could come back with, with even greater force. The recent revelations of what America and much of the rest of the world are calling war crimes in Ukraine have caused some countries to do and say more. Others are still grappling with how to prevent further fallout in their own countries. Lithuania was the first country in the European Union this week to completely end its dependence on gas from Russia. David, how is that decision viable for them? Well, Lithuania has been worried about being bullied by Russia for a long time, and Russia has a history of using gas gas cutoffs uh, as a kind of political weapon. So some years ago, uh, they built a terminal on their coast to receive liquefied natural gas coming by ship. They actually called the terminal Independence. And it's so large that it not only supplies Lithuania, but they're also now selling to their neighbors, Latvia and Estonia. And of course, these are not just kind of three neighbors. These are three Baltic republics, which used to be part of the Soviet Union, and which during the Soviet times were basically kind of captive states within a country that they did not consider their own. They were sort of colonies of Russia. And so they are very much in the lead of saying that Russia, as it were at the moment, supplies 40% of Europe's gas needs, that that is a, a geopolitical threat that uh, Europe simply cannot afford uh, to keep to, to maintain. The problem is that different bits of Europe have massively different exposure. There are some bits of Europe that get hardly any gas from Russia. There are other bits of the former Soviets of satellites, places like uh, Hungary, uh, the Czech Republic, which get really huge amounts of gas. And that has a big political impact. But we are seeing uh, plans to try and move to more liquefied natural gas, seeing the Americans promising at a recent summit in Europe that they would deliver more of this. But there's a limited amount of this stuff around. Everyone wants LNG because no one wants to buy Russian gas. There's not even that many ships that can deliver it. So the political will is there. And you are seeing remarkable things, particularly Germany, which was really dependent on Russian energy, making some big moves uh, not to accept a new Russian pipeline, but also to move away from Russian oil and gas. And this is 
the extraordinary thing that we're seeing is that Putin believed that not, not only did he have this powerful army that was going to conquer Ukraine easily, but his ability to sell oil and gas, to cut off the heating and the power to Europe would give him the whip hand. And you're seeing instead that he is uniting Europe and making it take decisions in a matter of weeks that they've been sort of arguing about and not doing anything really about for years. And he is remaking the energy map as well as the political map of the entire of Europe. Okay, and I want you to pull on this thread a bit and just explain a bit more about the hurdles Europe has to has to jump in order to gain independence from Russia when it comes to, to energy. Well, like David just said, uh, 40% of EU gas comes from Russia. So before you cut yourself off from that supply, you have to establish where you're going to start getting gas from instead. That means building your own new infrastructure. It means lining up new imports from other countries, whether that's from the Middle East or the United States. Then there's the logistics and the supply lines that go into that, as David was describing, just having the boats to ship the, the gas and the oil to Europe. So while the political will is there, it's going to take time to set all of that up. Um, and in the meantime, uh, you know, Russia is taking in hundreds of millions of dollars a day in European money, um, which it is using to finance its war. David, but it sounds like Lithuania was in some way preparing for this moment. Why haven't other EU countries responded in the same way? It's a very good question. And I think several American administrations, you know, going back to the Obama administration, in particular, told, told people like the Germans, when they saw them building uh, this new, people, listeners will remember this phrase, Nord Stream uh, pipeline, and, and you know, these large pipelines, two of them under the sea going from Russia directly into Germany, which was going to increase Germany's dependence on Russian gas, not decrease it. And for many years now, you've had America and others saying to the Germans, why would you increase your dependence on a country like Russia. And I think what this really gets to is that until this war with Ukraine, a large part of the political and business elite of countries like Germany refused to admit that Russia was not just a normal country. Maybe it behaved a bit badly. Maybe it had these small kind of military adventures that they kind of tut-tutted about, but that fundamentally Vladimir Putin was a man you could do business with. And they didn't want to believe the message coming from capitals like Washington that no, Vladimir Putin is different. He is, in fact, someone who you cannot trust and who is dangerously willing to use this as a weapon against you. And that is the really extraordinary thing. Germany, the largest economy in Europe, uh, the largest population in Europe, 80 million people, they have been through a, a sort of geopolitical journey the last few weeks, where in particular their current government, which is from the center-left party that was the most pro-Russian traditionally, is talking about this turning point, this, this Zeiten vendor, where everything is new. And they're canceling these contracts and, and treating Putin as the rogue that America always thought he was. Now, officials in China and India spoke out this week and called the number of bodies found in Bucha disturbing, but they still walked a, a fine line. Dave, what didn't they say in, in that condemnation? Right. So uh, the, when we had this vote at the UN uh, Human Rights Council, as was mentioned earlier, by the way, uh, which was based on the atrocities in Bucha to try to kick Russia off and send a signal that this was not acceptable. China voted with uh, Russia and India abstained. So they're uh, both walking something of a tightrope, but in different ways. Uh, India is trying to be pretty much neutral on this issue. We had a meeting between uh, the Indian foreign minister and his Russian counterpart. Um, the two of them are trying to strike some kind of deal that would allow 
India and Russia to continue to trade openly that could actually partially undercut Western sanctions. Uh, the Chinese, while they're in their public statements, are relatively neutral. Uh, and actually, David Rennie has written on this topic behind the scenes or on their propaganda channels on state media have been quite actively uh, arguing that this is all the West's fault. Uh, Russia had to act and that these war crimes and things that we're talking about are not actually being committed by Russia. So yes, two of the biggest countries, the two biggest countries in the world uh, are not on side with the U.S. when it comes to calling out Russia and taking action uh, against the invasion of Ukraine. Well, David, explain a little bit more about that disconnect between China's public statement and what's happening inside the country. It's very depressing. I'm sitting in Beijing in a country where the vast majority of people get their news uh, from censored state media. They are being told that this war is the fault of America. Uh, it's the fault of NATO uh, for enlarging and closing up towards Russia's borders, that America is the villain that is pouring fuel on the fire by sending arms into Ukraine, that uh, the, there's massacres in Bucha, according to state television here. Uh, they quote the Russians uh, saying that these were staged hoaxes by the Ukrainian people. The Chinese are very sneaky. They, they, they often just like to quote the Russians and then sort of just leave that out there. But if you watch the evening news or you read the state censors uh, internet news, it is all about how the Americans are to blame uh, and that China has no interest in not backing Russia because the Chinese show their hand when, as, as Dave says, you know, they have this kind of pro-Russian, anti-American pseudo-neutrality and they give the game away when they explain why. And what they say is that when we see how the Russians felt that their security was being destroyed by this bullying, wicked America in Europe, we feel the same way in Asia. We see America having its allies like Japan or South Korea in Asia, and we think they're trying to build a NATO in Asia, and we can't stomach that. So China says that in its own self-defense, it has to stand behind Russia in this contest with a wicked, bullying, uh, warmongering America that is deliberately pro prolonging the war in Ukraine, that America wants as many people to die as possible so that uh, the war, uh, the arms dealers and the bankers of America can profit. And that's not just some random blogger. That is a deputy defense minister of China saying that in an official speech. So it is a really disgraceful uh, pro-Russian, anti-American uh, sort of moment in, in China. And I think there are going to be very, very long-term consequences. It's not just America that's offended by this. I can tell you, talking to Western diplomats here, they are incredibly uh, disturbed by this Chinese position and very disturbed by the fact that China thinks that it's okay as long as it has allies in places like Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, who maybe side with China and Russia. And we're seeing the world divided into blocks with an anti-American, anti-Western global South led by China. And that is an incredibly disturbing long-term consequence of this war in Ukraine. Well, the war in Ukraine is impacting people around the world. Peruvian authorities say at least six people died during protests that started on Monday due to rising fuel costs. Let's listen to some sound from the capital, Lima. We can hear some shots and, and bombs going off there. Dave, what can you tell us about what's going on and, and the link these protests have to the war in Ukraine? Right. So Peru is dependent on oil imports. Uh, oil imports have gotten quite a bit more expensive directly because of this war in Ukraine, because of uncertainties about supply coming out of Russia. 
and so as a result, prices went up. And this is actually you know, a bit of a side note, but rising fuel prices are one of the most reliable causes of protests against a government. We've seen that in France with the yellow vests uh, in nearby Ecuador, um, in several countries when, pr- when fuel prices go up, Kazakhstan as well in Russia's neighborhood, when fuel prices go up, it can often lead to political instability and protests. And that is what's happening in Peru. Uh, and that's directly as a result um, of what's happening in Ukraine. And, and Kate, how is the fallout from the war focusing the minds of other world leaders, particularly around the, the issues of the price of food and the cost of energy? It's a good question. The food price situation is growing more dire. Um, not just oil prices are going up, but cereals and grains, which feed livestock, uh, fertilizer prices are going way up. And so you're seeing um, food price go up across the board. Um <clears throat> You're starting to see countries consider, um, you know, up until this point, there's kind of been a line drawn around um, sending Ukraine defensive weapons only. um, And that's starting to blur, you know, especially as you combine all of these things that we're talking about this week, whether it's the atrocities, um, the gas prices, the food prices. I mean, all of this is putting massive pressure on on world leaders to manage the domestic instability it's causing, as well as the geopolitical choices that they're having to face. Let's turn to Pakistan. Prime Minister Imran Khan appears to be on his way out. Yesterday, the country's Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional when he dissolved parliament last weekend ahead of a no-confidence vote. Dave, first off, remind us what was behind this no-confidence motion. Right. So uh, Imran Khan, several of his allies in parliament abandoned him. Um, uh, he's had quite a tumultuous tenure, and there have been several times when it looked like he might uh, be on his way out over his handling of the economy and other issues, and yet uh, he had survived. But this time, the writing was really on the wall. He didn't have the numbers to survive. It looked like the military, which helped put him in power, uh, had sort of lost faith in him and was drifting Away, And so he, the numbers were stacked against him as of last weekend. It looked like he was going to lose a no-confidence vote, and he decided to uh, suspend parliament and call for early elections. And so that led to this court ruling that that step was unconstitutional. Now we're expecting another vote uh, tomorrow to likely vote Imran Khan out of office. Interestingly, he has been blaming the United States in part, saying they're conspiring with the opposition uh, against him because, you know, he is this, uh, you know, not anti-Western. Well, he is sort of anti-Western in his rhetoric, but uh, an unfriendly face for them. Um, He's allied himself with Russia and China in various ways. Um, And so he says it's all a sort of Western slash uh, internal plot against him. The reality is a lot of parliament has turned against him. The military appears to have turned against him. And so he's likely to be out of office, uh, but he may well try to run again in 2023. David, what about the public in Pakistan? What's been their reaction? Pakistani politics is a mixture of kind of street politics and and uh, public protests, which are often very violent, often end in deaths. And we're seeing, unfortunately, Imran Khan, who came into office as a populist sort of anti-corruption campaigner, as Dave says, um, he has been calling for his supporters to take to the streets. Uh, he's been, you know, this whole idea that this is an American plot to get rid of him is not just kind of convenient rhetoric. It's designed to kind of fire up 
the idea that these are kind of traitors. We saw the defence minister, uh, Pervek Katak, uh, saying to a crowd that the young of the country should go to every street of the country to convey the message that they will oust traitors and that Imran Khan will not allow this country to be slaves. This is incredibly inflammatory rhetoric in a country with a history of serious political violence. But of course, it's not up to the people. It's actually Imran Khan, many people believe, was basically put in power by the military who have this habit of uh, when they hold a military coup and then the next elections happen, they choose who they think is a suitable candidate who will be pliant. And, you know, there isn't some kind of shining savior of good government waiting in the wings of the most likely at least caretaker prime minister uh, who might take over if if Imran Khan loses this vote of no confidence is in fact the younger brother of a billionaire previous prime minister, Nawaz Sharif. This is his younger brother who had become the caretaker prime minister. That's Nawaz Sharif has served time in prison for corruption. Is currently, I think, in the UK uh, in breach of his bail uh, because he uh, is supposedly there for medical treatment. So this is a desperately mismanaged country. But let's not forget, it's a country of 220 million people with nuclear weapons next to an Indian of a billion people with nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, this is the last kind of turmoil that we need in a world that is already uh, well underway to catching fire. We got this tweet from Ahmed who says it was the USA behind this no confidence movement. Simple. Dave, what is the prime minister saying uh, to support that accusation? He claims there were meetings between uh, U.S. diplomat and the opposition that were a kind of backroom plotting against him. Um, again, uh, it's it seems far-fetched uh, to me that at the current moment in time, the U.S. is trying to, to cook up some sort of legislative coup against Imran Khan. But uh, again, I am not an expert on, on Pakistani politics, uh, and this is what the prime minister is saying. It is, very, as David Rennie said, very convenient rhetoric for him to blame the United States, because although Pakistan has been a quasi-U.S. ally on security matters, uh, there is a lot of anti-American sentiment in the society, particularly in his base that he's playing to in this pretty desperate political situation for him. China's most populous city is still under lockdown. About 26 million people in Shanghai are facing restrictions in an effort to get COVID cases down to zero. The task is especially difficult given the country's recent surge. Uh, David, reports say that people are struggling to get food. Parents are worried about being separated from their children. What's going on? This would be shocking in in any country. It's a big city that has a very tough COVID outbreak, but it's absolutely extraordinary here in China. So I've not left China since the outbreak began. And for most of the last two and a bit years, most of China has been remarkably COVID free. That was at a terrible cost in terms of uh, sort of privacy and, and liberties for people who are locked down. The borders have been basically closed to the outside world for two years. But that had meant that for most of the time, certainly before Omicron hit China, most of China was remarkably normal. A lot of intrusive surveillance and getting your sort of uh, health codes checked and stuff and reporting your whereabouts, but normal. Omicron has changed that. So Omicron first rampaged around Hong Kong, uh, leading to an enormous number of deaths by local standards. We are now up to 24,000 cases a day in China. Now, that may not sound much to Americans who've been used to hundreds of thousands of cases a day, but by Chinese standards, that is extraordinary. I mean, for months and months, we had like 20 cases a day, 100 cases a day. And China was on the brink of contemplating easing off on those super strict controls. But now their most important commercial city, their kind of business capital, their New York, if you like, is absolutely out of control. They have locked 24 million people inside. And because they weren't expecting to have to do that, they didn't allow people to stockpile or give people notice to stockpile food, to stockpile water. So you have people in this richest city in China 
desperately trying to use their smartphones to summon kind of delivery people to deliver food because they're not allowed out to go to the supermarket. So people in the richest neighborhoods in China are reporting on social media that they have no food, they have no vegetables, they have no drinking water, people don't have medicines, people are dying because they don't have the ability to go to hostel to get kind of dialysis treatment in the richest and best equipped city in China. The government has responded by sending in huge numbers of uh, extra medical personnel, troops, but also, because this is China, uh, they're also going around and warning people not to complain on social media that they're going to get punished for spreading rumors. Uh, there's massive censorship. Every time people post about how bad things are, it's being deleted. But this isn't going to stop, because although China does probably have the discipline and the will to lock this wave down and to break this chain of transmission, there's nothing to stop it happening again. And in particular, the problem is that China has done an amazing job of, of being incredibly strict and disciplined, but it's done a terrible job of vaccinating its old people. Uh, the Chinese vaccine itself is not great. They won't approve foreign vaccines. And we have half of the oldest Chinese uh, not fully vaccinated and 50 million over 60s uh, who are not fully vaccinated. So they cannot learn to live with the virus as you are doing in the States because millions of old Chinese uh, would risk dying. And so this is a huge political crisis as well as a public health and humanitarian crisis. Well, and has the Chinese government said how long this lockdown will last? Nobody believes them because they told the people of Shanghai that it was a wicked rumor to say that Shanghai might lock down at all. They were warned that they would be punished if they said that it might be locked down as rumor mongers and the police had been locking people up for that sort of thing. Then they said, OK, we're going to lock you down for a few days. We're going to do one half of the city and then the other so we can do mass testing. But, you know, how dare you say we're going to lock down the whole city? That they have now locked down the whole city and it's basically locked down indefinitely. And within that, some of the details that we're hearing, and I have colleagues in Shanghai at the moment, you know, not only are people short of food, but if you test positive uh, or your kid tests positive, they have been separating young children, even babies, uh, from their parents, putting them in these huge kind of warehouse-like uh, pop-up hostels. So you have video of toddlers and children screaming in terror, no idea where their families are, where they are, what they're doing there. Uh, we're seeing uh, the authorities deciding that someone has been quarantined because they're positive, that maybe their cat or dog might have COVID. So we've been seeing them beating uh, people's pets to death on the streets. That's been videoed. Then those videos are deleted. People are warned not to publicize them. So, you know, the, the impressive thing about China for the last two years has been the extraordinary discipline and willpower they had to, to have a zero COVID strategy. But the dark side of that is that this is also a country capable of extreme ruthlessness and even brutality. And this is now unfolding in, in kind of the Manhattan of China in the most sort of wealthy and sophisticated bit of China. And it's, 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 it's just sort of stunning, uh, this country, that this could be happening in Shanghai. Well, let's stay with COVID for a moment. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tested positive this week. That means the Democratic Congresswoman from California is postponing a weekend trip to Japan. The, the trip reportedly was going to include a stop in Taiwan, and that prompted a, an official response from China saying she should not visit. As we know, Taiwan is a huge source of tension between China and the U.S. David, briefly, Pelosi would have been the first House Speaker to visit Taiwan in 25 years after Newt Gingrich. What's the next move here for both China and the U.S.? China is, is very, very upset uh, that they believe the Americans are, are, are trying to basically edge towards some sort of recognition of Taiwan as an independent country. I don't think that's right. I think the Biden administration is actually being extremely cautious. Uh, but they are very angry with politicians visiting. As you say, Newt Gingrich did visit. I think what's really dangerous is that 
you know, when China looks at Ukraine and when China, you know, is so anti-American in the context of Ukraine, that is because China's ultimate dream is to take Taiwan back. And if needs be, they will do that with a war. And the big question there is whether America would intervene and whether other countries would try and punish China in the way that the West is currently trying to punish Russia. So it should be unthinkable that nuclear armed superpower China could be contemplating a fight with the nuclear armed superpower of America over the island of Taiwan. It should be insane that we are saying that it could start a war because the speaker is going to visit this island of Taiwan. But you are seeing people on state media saying exactly that, that this is a a war provoking move by the Americans. Now, there isn't going to be a war just because Nancy Pelosi goes, but you're seeing how this anti-American rhetoric uh, is being stoked to kind of extreme levels by countries which are like China, big enough to know better and nuclear armed enough to know better. And it's really disturbing. Well, let's turn now to Turkey. On Thursday, a court halted the trial of Saudi suspects accused of killing journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The trial has been transferred from Turkey to Saudi Arabia, a move that drew outrage from activist groups. Dave, explain what's going on. Yes, so these uh, suspects were being tried in absentia inside Turkey. Turkey, uh, of course, was the site of the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi in the Istanbul consulate there. Uh, now this trial will be moved onto Saudi soil. We, you know, no one should expect a serious investigation or trial uh, from Saudi Arabia of its own officials and associates of the crown prince, who himself was not a suspect uh, in the trial, but was very much the elephant in the room because U.S. intelligence and others have said they believe he ordered this assassination. Uh, the decision to move the trial to Saudi Arabia appears to be perhaps an attempt at a reset of relations by the Turkish uh, President Erdogan with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, but what it means for people who have been hoping for some form of justice uh, here is that they're even less likely to get it. Kate, your thoughts? I think it's, you know, it's hard to it's hard to hold out hope that that Khashoggi's uh will will, will see justice. Um and especially now with this transfer to Saudi Arabia, um I think unfortunately that's not going to happen. Well, Yemen's exiled President Abdurabu Mansour Hadi stepped aside on Thursday, and that came amid efforts to end the country's long-running civil war. Kate, who's running the country now? Hadi has transferred power to a presidential leadership council. Um, he fired his deputy. He had been um, in exile in Riyadh for the for the duration of the war, and he was largely unpopular and viewed as an obstacle to peace. Um, this move, this lead, this giant political shakeup is viewed as an, uh, orchestrated by Saudi Arabia. Um, it's a major, you know, breakthrough, um, but it's unclear what this leadership council is going to do. Is it going to negotiate with the Houthi rebels or is it going to sort of consolidate this mishmash of power centers um, to, to consolidate power and fight them and, and perhaps um, prolong the conflict. So it's a it's a major moment in this war, which has been stalemated now for for several years, with enormous humanitarian consequences for the country. Over 150,000 people have died. So I think everyone's holding their breath to see what happens next and see what the aims of really Riyadh, which is behind this council, is going to do next. David, tell us more about the humanitarian piece of of this civil war. 
It's horrendous. So, you know, Yemen is is the, the, the one of the poorest bits of the Arab world. Um, this has been a, the most appallingly vicious proxy war, as proxy wars are often so vicious because the powers behind the scene are not actually losing their own lives. This is really a fight between the Saudis as the sort of uh, Sunni Muslim superpower versus the Iranians, the Shia Muslim superpower. And it's not an accident that the rebels in the north, the Houthis, uh, who are fighting uh, this presidential council and their troops that we see, uh, the, the, the Houthis are Shia Muslims. Uh, they are supplied and armed with increasingly sophisticated weapons by the Iranians. And for seven years, uh, we have seen uh, the levels of violence go up and up. And the response of the Saudi-backed coalition of Gulf Arab states uh, with their proxies, the Sunni proxies, uh, in Yemen has been to bomb from the air. And we've seen these just absolutely relentless bombing campaigns. And, you know, the, the problem is you cannot win a war from the air. You can inflict extraordinary misery from the air and you can't change the political facts. This is a deeply divided country. And so this bombing has really led to unimaginable suffering, not just uh, people being killed by the bombs directly, but also, you know, this is a country who's kind of, uh, you know, the food supplies have been totally disrupted. You've seen different armed groups taking control of aid supplies, using that as a kind of weapon of war. It's just an absolutely miserable situation. And as I say, this is the one of the tragedies when you have a proxy war where the players who are really using Yemen as a kind of chessboard uh, to play out their own sectarian differences. And the people of Yemen have been the pawns in the middle. Is this the next French president? The EU is almost already over. Rather than waiting for its chaotic collapse, I suggest we organize its transformation to a Europe of nations. That's Marine Le Pen speaking there in 2017, saying, quote, Again, the EU is almost already over. And the polls suggest she's giving President Macron a run for his money as its presidential election gets underway this weekend. David, what should we know about Macron's far-right rival? It should be unthinkable that she is this close. She is, she is, she is the daughter of a previous far-right leader. And there was, a, there was an election uh, many years ago where in the second round, because France has these two-round presidential elections, you had an unpopular sitting centre-right uh, president, Jacques Chirac, who suddenly found himself in the second round up against Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was this basically fascist, uh, racist, uh, anti-immigration party leader. And basically almost the entire French electorate said, we're going to have to vote. There were posters in the streets of Paris that said, vote for the crook, not the fascist. Uh, and, and, and Chirac won a sort of resounding landslide. We had a somewhat replay of this in 2017 when Emmanuel Macron, uh, this kind of centrist uh, politician with his own kind of political party, but a very sort of moderate centrist, he found himself in the second round against the daughter of that far-right leader, Marine Le Pen. And again, the left, the right came together and said, we cannot possibly have a Le Pen in the French presidency. So Macron won the second round 66 to 34, a landslide. Now it's a rematch and it is desperately close. And the reason it is desperately close is because a depressing, a worrying number of left-wing and right-wing voters in France, if they're forced to choose between Emmanuel Macron, the sitting president, who they think of as a kind of shill for the rich, a former banker, someone who they think is out of touch, and a woman who is still preaching an anti-immigration, anti-Islam, pro-Putin, pro-Russia message, they're willing to give her their votes. And so the latest polls are 53-47 for a second round. And that just shows you how the centre of politics has been hollowed out and far-right leaders. But I tell you, you know, if we end up in a world where the French president is a national front, or it's now it's called the, the, the Rassemblement National, they changed the name. But this is an anti-immigrant, racist, Islamist, anti-Islamist, pro-Putin uh, party leader 
are taking over one of the most important countries in Europe. And I can tell you one thing is Vladimir Putin would be popping the champagne in the Kremlin if Marine Le Pen wins the second round. Kate, what would it mean for the EU if she were to win this race? It would be devastating. I mean, it's a time when Germany's like going through this major transformation, trying to beef up its security and defenses after years of, of taking a more pacifist route in the face of Putin's aggression. And to have essentially a Putin ally leading France, it would divide um, the union, I think, um, beyond repair. I mean, like David said, this would be a win for Putin, almost more important than anything he can do on the battlefield in Ukraine. Well, and, and Dave, I, I want to connect this to Ukraine before we wrap up here. We hear David saying that, that Putin would pop the champagne if uh, Le Pen wins. I mean, could that have an impact on the war? Sure. And, and I think we should say early on in this race, the, the war in Ukraine actually looked quite positive for President Macron. At, at one point early in the war when he was playing this statesman role, the polls were 60-40 in his favor. It looked like it was over. But while he's been in Paris mainly uh, focusing on Ukraine, Le Pen has been uh, campaigning around the country quite effectively and she's managed to narrow that gap. You know, it seems like French voters are perhaps more interested uh, in her case against his pension reforms than they are in Macron's efforts to end the war in Ukraine. Uh, whether it will have a tangible impact on the battlefield, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the European countries are right now trying to cut off uh, Russian gas and supply as much weaponry as they can to the Ukrainians. If you have a French president who's largely favorable to Putin, those efforts would certainly be undermined. Our thanks this week go to Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Also with us today, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, and Kate Brannon, Deputy Editor for Foreign Affairs. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Jacqueline Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again on Monday. This is 1A.